0: Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip. Scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. It's been one year since I started OFTV, and I want to thank you all for listening and sending me emails and tweeting about it. The encouragement is amazing. And I'm especially thankful to those who support the podcast through Patreon. Your donations allow me to live, basically. We've had 13 episodes of OFTV in our first year, and in those episodes, we've covered everything from tragic MTF for f to m love stories to trans sex workers fighting back on the streets of Vancouver and even taken a trip back to the 1700s in our last episode. To start our year off right, this week we're going to take a look at the life of a trans civil rights pioneer, a woman who fought back against the anti-cross-dressing laws that curtailed the lives of so many trans people across the United States in the 20th century and gained fans among some of the most respected members of Black Hollywood at the time. This episode is especially indebted to the many years of work Monica Roberts has put into documenting and promoting the history of the African American trans community. Her website, transgrio.blogspot.com, is a wealth of knowledge from which we all owe her a collective debt. It is through her work that I first became aware of the subject of this week's podcast. So please go check out her blog and give her some appreciation. Now, join us as OFTV takes a look at the life of the one and only Sir Lady Java. Lady Java was born on August 20th, 1943 in New Orleans, Louisiana, or possibly 1940 according to her most recent statements in which she identified herself as 76 years old as of 2016. She describes herself as mixed race, black, French, indigenous, Spanish, German. Not too much is known about her early life, but it appears that she came out quite young and she had a close relationship with her mother. Here's how she describes that relationship in a 2016 interview.
1: That was hard because to live my life, and my mother used to say all the time, oh baby, she says, why do you choose that kind of life? That life is bad. And I say, I know mother, but someone has to make it better. So she said, well, That's why she used to wait up for me. Two o'clock in the morning, my mother would be in the window looking for me to come home because she said she never knew when someone might kill me or do something terrible to me. So my mother was the inspiration for me.
0: It's important to note that Sir Lady Java was born in the Jim Crow South. During this period, which lasted from Reconstruction to 1965, racial segregation was strictly enforced. You've probably seen famous photographs of separate drinking fountains for Whites and Blacks. There were separate washrooms, separate housing, separate schools, restaurants, and yes, public transportation, too. In Louisiana, the laws at times even categorize people more specifically, distinguishing between white, black, and colored with colored here meaning people of mixed black and white ancestry who were allowed to ride on trains with whites before 1890. During this period, black people were frequently employed as entertainers at white establishments, but would have to enter through the back door. The price of crossing these lines could include arrests, police violence, and even lynching. This milieu of racist laws and violence, as well as Black resistance to them, will prove to be very influential on the young Sir Lady Java, as we'll discuss later. Her name gives us a clue as to when and, importantly, where she first came into contact with drag culture. As Zagria writes, It is still custom in the southern U.S. states for female impersonators to call themselves Lady Whatever. See, the Lady Bunny, the Lady Chablis. In the 1960s and earlier, it was a custom for female impersonators to use a male honorific, usually Mr. or Sir. See, Mr. Lee Brewster. As for the name Java, here's what she says about that.
1: The the Java part of your life. Where did where did Java come from?
0: <laughs> oh, the Java
1: jive. <laughs> they called me here. Yeah. They said Java, you have it because you grind so fine. I don't know about that. <laughs> grind so fine. How how divine. Oh, how divine. But uh, Java came about. Um, I was I was young. And a a man told me, a a man off the street, nice-looking black fellow, he said to me, he said, ooh, you look like Java, baby, deep, dark, and delicious. And I thought he was hitting on me, and he was, but
0: uh, I said, Java. And
1: so that's how the name came about, Java.
0: One of the interesting things that distinguished Sir Lady Java from other female illusionists at the time was that she played mostly in straight clubs. While many drag queens, some of them trans women, performed in gay and drag clubs across the United States, some black female impersonators instead performed at black jazz and comedy clubs for ostensibly straight audiences. She performed alongside other Black performers doing variety acts, such as ventriloquism. Part of how she was able to become so successful in these spaces was that she passed as a woman and was a renowned beauty with apparently natural 38-24-38 curves, according to Monica Roberts' informative article about her. Her act, which was more in the realm of burlesque than the more popular forms of drag at the time, saw her scantily clad in glittering bikinis that showed off her best assets. From the photos, it appears that she almost definitely used some form of medical transition, probably including hormones and breast augmentation, but I haven't been able to confirm this with any of the written sources. She identifies herself now as a woman and as a transsexual. Her sparkling bikinis were in the style of 60s go-go dancers and inspired by Josephine Baker, a major influence on her growing up. These bikinis and other costumes were made in collaboration between her, her mother, and a friend who worked with her for 40 years. Here's what Lady Java has to say about them.
1: Oh, my God. Uh, first of all, my imagination with, with my costumes, I would, I would create them, and my mother would help put them together for me. Between my mother and me, and a lady called Florence, Florence Burrell. She's deceased now. She worked with me for 40 years. I miss her very much. And we would get together and we would make these costumes. I would get the jewelry for it. I would make the jewelry and the bracelets and things. It was just a wonderful idea. I'm thinking back over my mother and my Florence. It makes me want to cry.
0: It didn't take long for Sir Lady Java to become a hit. By the mid-1960s, she had moved to Los Angeles and counted among her fans Red Fox, Lena Horne, Richard Pryor, and Sammy Davis Jr., the creme de la creme of Black Hollywood at the time. Here's her fond remembrance of Lena Horne first coming to see her perform.
1: I appreciated when a woman came down to see me. Her name was Lena Horne, the Lena Horne, She was so beautiful, and she says, Java, why didn't you tell the people I was coming? They would have have packed the house. I said, Lena, I couldn't do that to you. You came to see me, not the people. And she said, thank you, Java, thank you. And that was the greatest part of my life, seeing Lena at a place called Memory Lane Supper Club on Santa Barbara.
0: She also, apparently, caught the eye of L. Ron Hubbard, a white science fiction writer better known today as the founder of Scientology. Her shows garnered reviews in mainstream newspapers and magazines, including Variety. Though she gained so much popular success by playing for straight audiences, she said recently that she regrets not playing for gay and trans audiences.
1: Oh, I, I never did. I never did. I'm so sorry I didn't. But I always performed for straight people, and that's the way it was. Wow, and those clubs I heard were really wonderful in those days. They certainly were. Uh, it, was, it was hard to appear just for the straight people, and when my gay people would come in, I would always put a front seat because it was always packed. I would put a front seat there for them to sit in the front.
0: Just a quick aside for a moment about language. Like many trans people of her generation, Lady Java's use of identity labels is much more fluid than young people's today. Gay can mean trans, trans can mean drag, woman can mean queen, or it can mean cis. The meanings pass easily between words while managing to remain clear. What is more important to her is the notion of what she calls my people. A people who are specific, but not so confined to a single, simple word. Things were not good for her people in the mid-1960s. Though she had gained much success through her work as a female illusionist in black clubs, police continued to raid drag bars and performances arresting anyone not wearing at least three articles of clothing of the gender they were assigned at birth. These types of anti-cross-dressing laws and frequently brutal police raids were common throughout the United States from the middle of the 19th century and continuing past Stonewall. They affected trans women, trans men, drag queens and kings, butches, effeminate gay men, and other visibly gender non-conforming people who were often beaten, sexually assaulted, and arrested by police for wearing what they wanted. In a future episode, we'll dive deeper into the history of anti-cross-dressing laws. But for now, let's talk specifically about Sir Lady Java. The year was 1967, two years before Stonewall. Los Angeles had a law in the book referred to as Rule 9, which made it illegal to, quote, impersonate by means of costume or dress a person of the opposite sex. The law was used strategically not just to target individuals, but rather to go after bar and club owners. At the time, the only places to be publicly or semi-publicly out as gay or trans were these bars and clubs. These bars and clubs are where we met each other. They're where we found dates. They're where we fucked. They're where we hooked up. They're where we performed and honed our arts. They were all we had at the time. And the police wanted to shut them down. In essence, to snuff out the emergent gay culture seeming to believe that doing so would stop sexual deviance from existing. They would also use laws against same-sex dancing and selling liquor to minors in this same crusade to stamp out our culture. Despite recent historical revisioning on Tumblr and other popular social media sites, it should be noted that these laws, in fact, targeted both gay men and drag queens/slash trans women on the one hand, and also lesbians and butches/slash drag kings/slash trans men on the other. In Los Angeles, Rule Nine had an exemption built into it, according to Monica Roberts. This exemption could be granted only if a club obtained a special permit from the L.A. Board of Police Commissioners. Roberts also pointed out that the California Supreme Court had struck down anti-cross-dressing laws a few years before, but Rule 9 continued to be enforced in Los Angeles in an attempt to morally clean up the city. Sir Lady Java's increasing popularity made her an easy target for the Los Angeles police. In 1967, Lady Java was hired for a two-week run at the Red Fox Club. It was quite successful, and at the end of the run, she was signed on to do another two weeks. Here's how Monica Roberts described what happens next. L.A. police officers showed up at the bar on La Cienega Boulevard and informed the principal owner of the club that if Lady Java appeared on the Red Fox Club stage, they would lose their license. Of course, that not-so-subtle threat by the LAPD had the desired effect of striking fear in other club owners who hosted female impersonation shows. What they didn't count on was that Lady Java would fight back. Here's how Lady Java describes her arrest and going to court. Oh,
1: I heard about that. Didn't you Your one of your shows? Was it uh, was closed down? Yeah, They, they, came, they came in with me and, and they took me off stage and a policeman was about 50 of them. And they all wanted to see me and they were looking and... Uh, They see me in a bikini. They say, man, I'll be goddamn. But I I just looked. And I said, what do you want? And I had three attorneys in the building, and there was one judge to see me. That's the kind of crowd that I drew. And they came in, and they said, "Uh, we're going to arrest you. We're going to start with the top, and none of the other impersonators will be able to work. And I said, well... What are, the, what are the criterias for me? Uh, what are you doing? And they said, uh, I said, they said three articles you have to have a male. So I had on some socks, little bitty socks, and I rolled them down. One article, a man's wristwatch, a very thin watch, and a bow tie around my neck. I had three male articles on, and my bikini. And they could not, they had to walk out of the place with their head down. I went to court on it, and I won LAPD. I won the right, the verses for Java to work, meaning other impersonators could work also.
0: After her appearance in court, Lady Java staged protests outside the Red Fox Club for the press, alongside other black female illusionists. In the famous picture, she smiles in a bright white mini dress and holds up a handmade sign that reads Java versus the Right to Work while Red Fox comically throws his hands up in the air. What's really amazing is how Lady Java frames her protest. This wasn't a homophile protest or gay rights protest. To her, this was a civil rights issue. The Right to Work. Her history growing up under segregation and living through the civil rights movement gave her what the LA police hadn't counted on, a firm moral resolve and a political understanding of her place in the world as a black trans woman. She said at the time, the law is depriving me of my livelihood. I feel it's unconstitutional. Java linked up with the American Civil Liberties Union, where lawyer Jean Martin attempted to help her bring a case to trial in order to strike down Rule 9. She's quoted as saying at the time, it's got to stop somewhere, and it won't unless someone steps forward and takes a stand. I guess that's me. Unfortunately, the judge threw the case out because, he argued, Java did not have legal standing. Despite the fact that the laws are being used to directly bar her and people like her from the right to work, only the club owners themselves could challenge it. She and the ACLU lawyer attempted to find a club owner brave enough to take on the law in court, but to no avail. While she was not able to get it struck down by herself, she did manage to galvanize the local gay and trans community through a series of rallies and protests. It's worth noting that, in her recent recollections of this event, she remembers herself as winning back the right to work. Though this is not exactly the case of the historical record, the work she did was crucial in pushing through a case two years later that did manage to repeal Rule 9. In early 1969, a theater owner was brought before the court for showing movies without a permit. The same type of permit needed for drag shows to gain the exemption from Rule 9. He argued that, that the giving of permits was arbitrary and subject to whim, and thus violated his First Amendment rights. He won his case, and the Los Angeles police quickly realized that this would open the door to future litigation about all of their arbitrary rules related to it, including Rule 9. They took them off the books, and club owners were informed that drag shows were allowed. Lady Java kept on performing, getting several positive mentions in Jet Magazine. In 1976, she appeared in the black exploitation film The Human Tornado, in which she is kidnapped and then rescued. It's very weird. I've tried to read the description of it, and it's full of all kinds of words that I don't think I should use. But basically, she's a cocktail waitress, along with this other cocktail waitress, and they get abducted by this little person, grandma, who has a python she's threatening them with. It's kind of a wild John Watersy sort of situation. Um, I would love to find a copy of this. If anyone has a copy of it, please send it to me. I cannot tell you how happy it would make me to get to watch this really bizarre film from the 70s. After that, in 1978, she performed at the birthday party of her idol and friend, Lena Horn, which was covered in Jet Magazine as well. For many years, she continued to put on drag shows, eventually slowing down to just one a year. But the scene had changed. The glamorous, glitzy clubs of the past were being replaced by rowdier, raunchier performers and audiences, Lady Java's elegance was becoming a thing of the past, and so, eventually, she stopped putting on new shows. What happened in her life after 1978 isn't known, until she popped up recently in a 2016 interview from which the audio used throughout this episode is taken. We do know that in her later years, Lady Java suffered a stroke that paralyzed her left side.
1: I've had a stroke, and uh, a stroke, I was not able to move my left side, and my left side of my face was twisted, and I lost a portion of my brain, and they said that I wouldn't come back, but I start praying to God, and the Almighty God has brought me back. And I'm very, very pleased with that. Um, A stroke is not to be played with, honey. Take care of yourself. Eat right.
0: She continues to live today in Los Angeles and is working on a memoir. She was given a special award at LA's Trans Pride in 2016 in recognition of her dedication and passion for empowering the trans community. If there are any trans people out there looking to do oral history work, I'd urge you to consider contacting Sir Lady Java. She is now 74 or 76 years old, and if someone doesn't work with her to document her entire life story soon, we may never get the chance to know it. Sir Lady Java also does not have a Wikipedia page, something I hope one of our listeners will rectify as soon as possible. Her legacy of fighting for civil rights as a Black trans woman is part of what allows all of us to live our lives today. And I think it's up to our generation to ensure that she is not forgotten. We'll end our story today with her own words about her legacy.
1: Which I don't like taking awards or they, uh, for some reason, I'm just grateful to to do anything I can. And when I can help my people, then that's what it's all about. That's what makes me happy. I'm very much into helping the LGB community because they do so much. I remember the time when we had nothing. I mean, there was no community like that. There was nothing to help us. No one cared. So I had to care. And I kept on and kept on. And kept on, and now they're so big—it's unbelievable. I think that comes from within, you know, when you have God in your life. And I believe in there's some kind of something in the air or some place around us that says God. And when you keep that, you keep Him in your life. I think you can can keep other people happy.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of one from the vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamor from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec on the traditional territories of the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used I am indebted to Monica Roberts, in particular, for her excellent article on Sir Lady Java and all of the work she's done promoting the history of African American trans people. I'm also indebted to Pascual and Tom, whose interview with Sir Lady Java in 2016 was immensely helpful. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you'd like to contribute to the making of future episodes, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com/oftv. You can also tweet at me at MorganMPage on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. Watch over me. Little lad